the background is that um, Paul has been preparing the Christians at Rome for what he believes is going to be a time of persecution. Uh, and he, he weaves together a, a tremendous picture of how God is in control of everything and that everything works together for good and that nothing can separate us from God's love, no matter how intense this battle gets. So we're going to pick up at verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Looking at our television screens over the past few weeks, War is a very present reality. It's not just a word in the dictionary or a a concept out there or, or even a computer game. It's something in which people are facing, in a very literal sense, an existential crisis. Suffering on a, a level we cannot imagine. Bravery at times and savagery at a, a level we cannot imagine. It reminds us that when the scripture uses war, and it does, as one of the images of the reality of the Christian struggle, that's what it's talking about. It's not just picking a word at random. It's reminding us of the intensity, at times the awfulness, the existential struggle that we're actually in. And the deadly seriousness with which we ought to view it, and the the imperative to to press on, and a bit like the Ukrainians, keep fighting, regardless of 
what the odds seem to be. And so we have Paul, for example, talking about who we're fighting against. In, in 2 Corinthians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Or sorry, in, in Ephesians, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Then he goes on to say, well, that being the case, we ought to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand, and having done all to stand. In 2 Corinthians, we, we learn how we're supposed to fight. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not the type of weapons that we use in a worldly war, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the scripture doesn't paint any other picture for us, but that at times the Christian life is warfare. It's a warfare that's conducted at many levels within ourselves a lot of the times as we battle temptations that nobody else knows about. Sometimes as we struggle in our families to, to be the husbands and wives and mums and dads and children that we ought to be. Sometimes in terms of how we relate to our neighbours or how we relate within the church and how the church relates to the world. It's, it's happening at every level, isn't it? And all the time we're beset by the, the wicked one and our own nature and the environment in which we live. What I want to concentrate on this morning on this massive topic is just one thing and that is the encouragement that we're given in that fight it is a fight but we're given tremendous encouragement and i want to look at the encouragement specifically that we're given here in this last section of paul's letter to the romans in chapter 8 he starts off with a rhetorical question it's a rhetorical question in the sense that the answer is in the question itself. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I love that because the reality of this war, which is a vicious war, a, a nonstop war, an existential war is already framed in terms of victory. Yes, we fight. And the fight is hard at times. And at times we don't seem to be winning. But he says, remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now let's, rem let's remind ourselves what that's not saying. <laughs> it's not saying if God is for us, nobody will try to be against us or the devil will give up. But what he's saying is if God is for us, ultimately the victory is secure. Now, everything else he says is really, if you think about it, an outworking of that big idea. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he begins to unpack that in the next verses. It's a big statement to say, isn't it? Considering what we have been saying about the type of warfare we're engaged in, who our chief enemy is, that no enemy can defeat us. But that's what he's saying here. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, the Bible doesn't look at God as some sort of 
concept, but it introduces us to a person. The one who has created all things. The one in whom there is no changeableness or variableness of any description. The one who cannot lie. The one who cannot fail. The one above all else who has been revealed to us in the person and work of his son. And that's where he turns to in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, there have been many verses misunderstood in the scripture, but that surely is one of them. <laughs> what is Paul saying when he says, God will give us all things? Well, let me burst your balloon. It's not going to mean if you want a new Mercedes that God's necessarily going to give you a new Mercedes <laughs> or that you'll sail through life without any problems. Remember the context. The context is the battle. The context is the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And what he's saying is, in that context, when I say, if God is for us, who can be against us? What I am saying is, for all of that to work out as a practical reality in your life, God's not going to hold back anything you need. How do we know? Well, there's many things we're going to need, isn't there? We don't know. We don't know how this day is going to work out, never mind the rest of our lives. Let's be honest. I don't know what I'm going to need ultimately to get through this day, never mind the rest of my Christian life. But I know this. I've already been given everything. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Come on, Paul is saying, think it through. Yes, there's a million and one things you're going to need to finish the Christian life. But is God going to withhold any of them, having already given Jesus for you? In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Father has loved him from all eternity. He is worth more than 10 million universes. And God has reached into his heart and given him for you. When you most needed him and least deserved him, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now Paul says, if he gave Jesus, hasn't he not given everything by giving Jesus? And the things that you need, you will get. To be, as he described it earlier, conformed to the image of his son. You see, the third thing then is that Christ's work in giving Jesus, he has completely dealt with our undeservedness. If there's anything that haunts us as we go through the Christian life, it is this half-truth. And if there's anything more dangerous than a lie, it's a half-truth. And the half-truth is this. I am an undeserving sinner, therefore there's no way I'm going to make it. Remember I said that's a half-truth. Guess which part is the truth? <laughs> the first part is the truth, isn't it? 
I am an undeserving sinner. But the second part is the lie. Therefore, there's no way I'm going to make it. There's no way I'm going to get through this battle. And Paul takes the sword of the Spirit and cuts right through to the heart of this half-truth. And the scene changes momentarily from the battlefield to the courtroom. And maybe the scene isn't changing so much as we think, because maybe the courtroom is where the battle actually is. Maybe the heart of the battle is that untruth. I'm undeserving, therefore there's no way I can make it. Who, he says, shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Remember we said this is a spiritual battle ultimately. Its weapons are not physical weapons. The weapons cast against us are not swords or spears or even atom bombs. At times we wish they were. It's a thought planted in our minds by the one who the scripture calls the accuser of the brethren. It sounds something like this. You really think God wants someone like you? You really think that knowing you as even you know you, (laughs) that God would want anything to do with you? You think that knowing all your failures, that you've already failed, and never mind the failures that are going to accumulate throughout the rest of your life, that you're going to make it to heaven? Be real. That's the ultimate battle, isn't it? But God, through his Spirit, in the words of the Apostle Paul here, zeroes in right there. Christ's work completely deals once for all, forever, with our undeservedness. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now again, this question isn't a question that says no charge will be brought against God's elect. It means who can effectively bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer? It is God who justifies it was, it's not without reason that the great German reformer Martin Luther called the doctrine of, of justification by faith as the standing or falling article of the church. What is this church? What is Brannockstown Baptist Church? What is Dundalk Baptist Church? Bottom line is we're a collection of saved sinners. Not a collection of nice people although I'm sure you're a lot nicer than I am. (laughs) That's not a high standard, by the way. (laughs) We are, as Martin Luther said, at one and the same time sinners and justified. And as far as the devil's ability to accuse us and condemn us, that, to using a tennis metaphor, is game, set, and match. It's over. What do we mean it's over? Why can he not condemn us? It's not that there's not enough sin, but it's that all of the sin has been dealt with. The devil has been disarmed by what God has done in our justification. 
Well, what has he done? Well, look what Paul says. It is Christ who died. Stephen Murphy or any other justified sinner sitting looking at me and hopefully listening to me this morning will never face eternal death because Christ has died already. Christ's death was the death that I deserved to die. But he died in my place. But praise God he didn't stay dead, did he? Paul says, and furthermore is also risen. Why is, I'm sure you've been uh, rehearsing the the, the doctrine of the resurrection as you go through the Nicene Creed. Why is it important that Jesus is risen? Because when we look at a risen Savior, we are looking at God's amen to that cry of victory that Jesus echoed on the cross. It is finished. And the resurrection says, yes, it is. He now lives in the power of an indestructible life. He died once for all. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous to bring us to God and bring us to God he did and no one can ever separate us again. If God be for us, who can be against us? If Christ has died for my sins, then my sins are dealt with. And the resurrection says, yes, Stephen, you can believe that. You must believe that. And no matter how often the thought comes that you shouldn't believe it, the resurrection of Jesus says, it's a finished, accomplished fact. A risen Savior tells me that a dying Savior has accomplished his work. And there's more. And not only is he risen, but we know where he has risen to. He is even at the right hand of God. Yes, seated in glory. He could have said that. That's true. But in his session in glory, he's making intercession for us. The first part of his high priestly work was concluded at the cross. But the second part of his high priestly work, the intercession, continues and will continue forever. I think it may have been the great Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, who said, would it make any difference if you knew that Christ was in the other room praying for you? (laughs) Well, he's in heaven praying for you. And we have this picture, don't we, of, we see it in Job, of of Satan coming before God and he accuses Job. And in a sense, that, that, that picture is the picture of us as well. Look at Stephen Murphy. You know, as soon as he opened his eyes, he sinned this morning. Ah, but my intercessor says, I have died for him. All his iniquities were laid upon me, and by my stripes he is healed. Yes, he's a sheep that has gone astray. But I was wounded for his transgressions. 
I was bruised for his iniquities. The chastisement to bring him peace was upon me. And the accuser must fall silent. Because it's Christ who died, who is also risen, who also makes intercession for us. And since that is true, Paul goes on to say, Nothing in all the circumstances of life can separate us or undo what God has done in Christ. And so he asks one of those rhetorical questions again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, he gives us a sample list of the the things that we, we, we struggle with. Trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Then he he turns in in verse 36 to, to the scriptures. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Quoting from Psalm 44. Look what he's doing there. He's saying, look at The scripture tells us that at least some of the time this is what our life is going to be like. But remember to look at what God has already done. And he concludes in verses 37 to 39 with some amazing words of encouragement. Look at what he's been telling us so far. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's his overarching statement. How do we know? Because he sent Jesus. And if he sent Jesus, then in sending Jesus, he has freely given us everything that we need, no matter what form the spiritual battle takes. The heart of the spiritual battle ultimately is our undeservedness, our sinfulness, isn't it? But God has dealt with that in the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the the intercession of Jesus at our right hand. If that's the quality of God's love, and it is, then when he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, the question contains the answer. Obviously, nobody can. But not only can nobody separate us by throwing all these situations of life at us, it's even more amazing than that. Look at verse 37. Yet in all these things, not in spite of these things, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson. Don't worry, it won't last too long. (laughs) The phrase he uses here is the phrase, huper nikeo. And you never hear, anyone here ever wear Nike sports shoes? Some of you might have. Why do you think they're called Nike? For this reason, Nike is the Greek word for a winner or a conqueror. 
bad news is most people who wear Nike shoes don't actually win anything. <laughs> but notice what he's saying here. He, he's saying not only will you be a conqueror, but more than a conqueror. A hooper, Nikeo. How can you be more than the winner? Let's just tease that out. In athletics, think of your Nikes, or in the context here, which is more important, in a battle, the winner wins. It's pretty brutal, but the winner wins because they're the one who deserves to win. They're the fastest, they're the strongest, they got the most tanks, got the best soldiers, they win because they deserve to win. They've put in the training. They've overcome the obstacles. They've faced down the enemy. They're a worthy Nikeo. But we were a Hooper Nikeo. We were an even greater winner. Because we win having put in no training, having no weapons of our own, being totally undeserving from start to finish. All the rules of the game seem to be turned on their head in our case. We win in spite of the fact that all the circumstances are against us. The enemy is obviously in his own right too powerful for us. How in the world can we be more than conquerors in that type of battle? Through him who loved us. There's only one ingredient on our side in our favor, but it's the only ingredient that matters. We win in the battle because the winner is on our side. The one who has already triumphed over Satan at the cross and all his principalities and all his powers and is the answer to all our undeservedness, no matter how undeserving we are. Through him who loved us. How will Stephen Murphy get to heaven in spite of who Stephen Murphy is? Through him who loved me. How will the good folk of Brannockstown Baptist Church get to heaven? Through him who loves you. You see, we are more than conquerors because we conquer as losers. <laughs> We conquer as undeserving. We conquer as those who shouldn't conquer at all. Because we have the conqueror on our side. Through him who loved us. And then Paul goes on to finish in a, in a massive hymn of of praise based on this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. And to save him and us an awful lot of time, he says, or any other created thing. <laughs> 
that pretty much brings, you know, any other created thing is pretty much everything except God, isn't it? <laughs> any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we win through the only thing that cannot change. The God who cannot change. The God who has revealed himself to us in Christ, in his perfect person and his perfect work. We win through God's love for us in Christ. That gracious, self-sacrificing, all-embracing, undefeatable, all-powerful love in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 11 and 12, we're, we're given a glimpse of the battle's outcome from God's point of view. The seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, we're fighting a very strange battle. We're fighting a battle not to decide the outcome, but we're fighting a battle, the outcome of which has been decided already. In Revelation 12, Then they heard a loud voice in heaven. Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, isn't it? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is the guy he's talking about. And they overcame him by their supreme worthiness. No. <laughs> by their dogged perseverance. No. By their sincerity, no. By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As we sadly look at the ongoing situation in Ukraine, goodness knows how long it will last. We need to be praying that it doesn't last much longer. We're reminded, aren't we, of an even more important battle. A battle with much higher stakes, but with an already decided outcome. in which we, amazingly, undeservedly, and yet assuredly, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you that we can come in here distracted though we are at times, unworthy though we are in ourselves at every time. 
and pour out our hearts to you through him who loved us and gave himself for us. We have in Jesus. That we've been singing about in our songs, that we've been listening to in your word, that we've been reflecting on as we teased out that word in the sermon. Father, we pray that we would be refreshed as we consider these great truths in the week ahead. We do not know, as the songwriter said, what lies ahead, the way we cannot see. But one stands near to be our guide. He'll show the way to me. We thank you that if you're for us, who can ultimately effectively be against us? We thank you that you have not spared your own son, but freely given him up for us all. And in this battle, hard though it is, impossible from our point of view at times though it is, you will not withhold from us anything we need to see that victory personally accomplished in our lives. We thank you for the, the guilt of our sin being dealt with in the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that even now, as we bow in your presence, he is at your right hand, making intercession for us. And we bless your name for the difference that that makes. Be with us as we bring our service to a close. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.